Section 9 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Midnight Cave, Part 2. But there is one feature of the scene which must not be omitted. It is the quiet order of the elements and their uninterrupted sameness. It is like God that it should be so. The night wind rose among the low hills as it always rose. The stars leapt into their places one by one, the brightest first, as the darkness of the night increased. The dusky features of the landscape wore the same physiognomy as usual. In the indistinctness of the quiet night, there was a look of unmovedness, of independence, of want of sympathy in the face of nature, which was out of harmony with the expectation of the creature, or the near approach of the creator. The scenery was unconcerned. It was as if nature stood on one side and let God pass, and made no obeisance, and altogether had nothing to do with what was going on, as if it was a world by itself, and did not interest itself in the worlds of spirit and of will. Has not this sometimes happened to ourselves in life? When a friend has died in the night we may have opened the casement and looked out into the clear darkness. Our hearts are full. It seems as if all hearts were in our one heart. We almost dream that at that moment we monopolize in our single selves and in our new sorrow all the interests on earth. We look out upon earth as if its silence would answer what we are feeling. But the moon is mockingly bright. There is the not unmusical moaning of the night wind. The birds are restless upon their roosts. Whoever knew them not so in moonlight... All is as usual. The lineaments of nature are expressionless. There is plainly no sympathy there with our sorrows, our fears, our hopes, or our regrets. We look to nature, but her blank, unresponsive face, happily yet not without some unexpected rudeness, flings us back on God. There was an earthquake upon Calvary, but all is still, careless, uniform, regardless, in the winter night of Bethlehem. Earth shows herself expressively inanimate, painfully so. It is not the look of death, for that is full of mute disclosures. It is like a fair face with the mind gone from within. It is below the eyeless beauty of the sculptured marble, a kind of stolid beauty making the heart heavy that looks upon it. To me there is something quite awful in the silent drifting of the stars over Bethlehem that night. But let us turn from earth's fair material landscapes and from its dismal spiritual scenery to the sights and occupations of heaven on that momentous night. At the moment of the incarnation, had the angels seen anything in the vision, anything which was almost like a change? Had they seen the sacred humanity lying in the lap of the Holy Trinity? Now, in the night of this 24th of December, was there any visible movement in God? Was there any stir upon the broad ocean of his adorable tranquillity? Did the shadow of the babe rest on his sea of silent fire? How deeply must they have seen into God to behold that the incarnation was in truth no change, but that, like all God's external works, it flowed naturally, so to speak, from his perfections, and was in fact the original, exemplary, model work of all God's outward works. How intensely beautifying must the science be which accompanies such a vision as this. All eternity is one present point to God. But in our way of thinking, if he could have had a memory, 
how would he have pondered then the old silence before creation, and this night's fulfilment of visible creation eternally predestined? If there could be successive thoughts in the great God, how adorably wonderful would have been the thoughts of the divine mind at that midnight hour. Such must have been the sight which the angels, the eldest born of time, must have seen that night. It would appear to them as a beautiful procession, a procession of the divine decrees, seeming to climb their successive heights and shine like risen suns upon the angelic spirits. It is these decrees which men make the subject of so much controversy, but which seem fitter matter for devotion to whose sweet fires they minister abundantly. Controversy does but desecrate their silent sovereignty. How the intelligences of the heavenly hosts must have thrilled with magnificent worship and ecstatic delight as they watched these eternal decrees, slow, gigantic, venerable, yet sweet-faced exceedingly, as though they had the countenances of children come up one after another into the abysses of God and shine forth into their victorious accomplishment. Each sun, as it rose over some immaterial mountain height discernible by the angels in the divine ocean of essence, poured its golden effulgence into their vast spirits and filled them with throbbing tides of joy. Each sun flung its grand dawn over them like a new world of light, each seeming more beautiful than its predecessor each indeed appearing to exhaust all that was beautiful in God, until it was presently outshone by another yet more incredible grandeur, quietly and noiselessly streaming out of the plenitude of God, as the speechless sun rises from the ocean. Next to the uncreated procession of the Holy Ghost, the procession of those divine decrees which represent creation and its consequences, is the glorious pageant which makes eternal festival for the blissful understandings of angels and of men. One of the most dazzling of its sinuous bends was passing before the raptured gaze of the angelic hierarchies on that night of the 24th of December. In all that assembly, in all the courts of highest heaven that night, there was, except the shadow of the babe, no figure or form of man, no shape of human soul, the thousands and tens of thousands of the redeemed saints were waiting elsewhere to be delivered only when the babe had died and risen again, and to enter heaven only when he, first of all, had triumphantly ascended thither. Surely we may say, with all reverence, that if God had been less than God that night, his providence could not then have been mindful of the countless details of his vast creation. His own personal concurrence to every action inward and outward, rational and irrational, throughout the wide world, would have been unequal and irregular. Nature would have fallen into the hands of its blind laws, like a child deserted by its mother, and confusion and ruin would have ensued. The equability of God's power and presence is most adorable, and when we see it acting in its even, calm, unwithdrawn extent even at the moment of such great mysteries as those of Nazareth and Bethlehem, we get some faint idea of the grandeur of his majesty, because, unworthy as even that comparison may be, mysteries of such surpassing wonder seem to be no more to him than the common actions, which we are eliciting hourly with only a half-consciousness of them, are to us. As we read, and know not that we are actually spelling while we read, so, from one point of view, creation, incarnation, and grace seem to flow out of God without his moving, while from another point of view we see him bending over a mystery like an intensely studious artist, 
or over an individual soul with all the anxious minute fondness of a mother or a nurse. There was not a rude Briton in the Weald of Kent, nor a Gaulish druid at his vigil on the seaward-looking promontories, but God was assiduously attending to him that night, without an appearance of his attention being distracted by other things. There were thousands of villagers, in hollows or on hills, upon which the quiet moonlight was as softly falling, and calm providence as noiselessly busying itself, as at Bethlehem. The sleep, the food, the health, the pulses of all the multitudinous beasts and birds were being looked to in all places, and at each moment by our Heavenly Father. He was dexterously saving animal life among the grinding flows of the polar seas. He was measuring out the progress and weighing the falling outthrust masses of the glaciers amidst the reverberating mountains. He was guiding with rudders of intervening love the lava streams of southern volcanoes. He was intimately occupied with each voiceless coral insect that was laying the foundation of new worlds, or crowning with rough diadem the craters of a sunken world in many an ocean far and wide. He was concurring in his omnipresence to a whole world of fantastic dreams that hovered on the wings of night over countless sleepers, civilized or savage. Yet so tremendous was the mystery of Bethlehem, that, had he been less than God, he must have been caught and stayed by its excessive beauty and his complacency abstracted and absorbed in its ministrations to his glory. Let us descend beneath the earth and see how that night passed there, in the world of spirit which fills the planet, as well as in that world which peoples its crust, and that which encompasses its atmosphere. If we look into the limbus of the fathers, there are surely silver flakes of light falling even there. As there are degrees in sleep, and one sleep is sweeter than another, so doubtless were the degrees in that repose within Abraham's bosom. There might be more contentment in their expectation, more sweetness in their conformity to the will of God, more jubilee in their tranquil, patient love. Their life was as the life of saints in ecstasy, and so they waited. Their faith had become attainment, although they had not yet attained, for it was turned into joy, although it had not yet come to sight. There were pulses, doubtless, in that realm of peaceful caves. There was a heart, and but one heart, in Abraham's bosom. There were times when expectation trembled, and its tremulousness was an increase of its joy. Adam and Eve were there, Abel and Noah too, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph also, and Daniel, Moses, and Aaron, and Joshua, and Samuel, the Christ-like David, the good kings, the grand prophets, the brave Maccabees, Job, and the multitude of the sanctified heathen, and the penitents who had swum for life in the great deluge, and had found a better life through penance, even while they lay in the lap of God's judgment. Perhaps there were angelic visitations there that night, to tell them the glad tidings of Bethlehem, and the village of the favourite Benjamin, who thus had his peculiar joy that hour. There was also the painless limbus of the children, souls who had gone through no probation, and so had never stained themselves with actual sin, and yet whom no sacrament had brought into supernatural covenant with God. Perhaps in their dimness there might be additional light that night, something more like a shining in the pearly softness of their perpetual dawn. There might be thrills in their unintelligible beatitude, a quickening in the low-lying contentment of their undeveloped lives. 
Why do the fires of purgatory all at once sink so low, and why does the bitterness of their taste seem so diluted? In that realm it is a night of universal relief, perhaps also of abundant release. Souls look at each other in astonishment, the release of the others is a joy even to those who remain, for it is an abode of consummate charity, although in exquisite suffering. But now the precious blood is about to appear upon the earth, where it can be shed, and in eight days will be shed, in fact. That blood is the cooling dew of purgatory. It fulfills an office there, which nothing but itself can fill. For nine months a stream of divinest satisfactions has flown from the unborn babe, and worked wonders among those holy souls. The breath of those satisfactions has passed over that sea of fire, like a refreshing air, wafting balm and coolness to the prisoners and exiles there. But now these satisfactions are to find a wider outlet, and to flow in a vaster channel, pouring their magnificent infinities over all creation, and purgatory is thronged with releasing angels, waiting the midnight hour. In that subterranean realm of spiritual suffering and refining fire, St. Michael will display his exulting devotion to the babe of Bethlehem. O King Solomon, art thou so happy as to be there? The true Solomon, the wise Prince of Peace, is coming. Will he bring rest to thee, who were the chosen type both of his wisdom and his peace? It is a night in purgatory, the very opposite of the night of the slaying of Egypt's firstborn upon earth, a night truly to be much remembered before the Lord, but remembered for that grand pardon which has only been equalled and surpassed by that other pardon three and thirty years later, when the soul of the babe left the body upon Calvary. Even in hell we must believe there was some stir. The whole spiritual creation of God, even where it goes down under the darkness in the inextricable eternal swamps, must have felt such a mystery as the temporal nativity of the incarnate word. The mystery of hell is in close connection with the mystery of Bethlehem. The latter recounts the history, explains the significance and justifies the difficulties of the former. Doubtless there was an increased oppression there, a nameless fear among the proud, terrified spirits, obstinate but horror-stricken, remorseful yet not repentant, coveting God as the miser covets gold, and yet turning away from him with a scared loathing, and only worshipping him with the wicked worship of their curses. It is a world of ruined grandeurs, a realm of blighted intelligences and tortured lives, a multitudinous chaos which the vindictive justice of the all-seeing and all-holy alone can disentangle or understand, and yet which that justice has marvellously sorted, named, and numbered. When the midnight struck on earth and was told by watchmen in its streets, they must have run from the cave of Bethlehem, swifter than the vivid lightning into those depths of hell, a panic which stunned the rebel hosts and made them cower. It would increase perchance the hatred of the devils to the souls of men, which now became exasperating monuments to them of what they vainly try to think is a divine injustice. The grand conspiracy of hell, the very malice of which had something gorgeous about it, something which perhaps horridly fascinated the guilty, is now baffled baffled by the quiet, gentle might of the Incarnation, disclosed, frustrated, put to scorn by the speechless look of an infant's eye in the deep midnight at Bethlehem. He has come, whom his mother now addresses by that musical yet potent name, which had clashed all the bars and bolts of hell a while ago, when Gabriel first pronounced it. 
but let us return to the cave. If places are consecrated in the eyes of whole generations by having been the birthplaces of great men, or the spots where they have produced immortal works of genius, what shall we say of the spot where the incarnate God was born? Surely it must be a place of pilgrimage to the end of time. They who cannot visit it in the body must make their pilgrimage to it in spirit. It is not merely devout curiosity which we shall thus gratify, or even fresh fuel for the fires of meditation which we shall lay up, but, according to our usual way of regarding things, we shall learn much about God, His character, and His way, by our study of the cave of Bethlehem. When we enter it and attentively consider its furniture, it seems to set before us the whole mystery of the Incarnation. It lights up entire regions of the mind of God, and discloses it to us with a mixed representation of symbols and realities. For what is it which the red wind-shaken lantern of St. Joseph reveals to us? The centre of the cave is as yet hidden from us. It is the word made flesh, the unborn babe, around whom all the other things are grouped. He is the centre of all worlds, and for the most part invisible. His very creatures form a screen around him, and his mother did at that moment. Yet from time to time he discloses himself, as he will now do at midnight, remaining this time obscurely visible for three and thirty years. But even when hidden, he is still the attraction, the unity, the life, the significance, the success, and the sublime repose of all the worlds of which he is the centre. Round him, as if it were the cloister of his sanctuary, are the beauty and the strength of created holiness. Guarding his ineffable purity from the contact and the neighbourhood of common creatures, in the midst of the cavern Mary is at prayer. There was nothing commanding or persuasive at first sight in her spiritual beauty. Many women in Bethlehem had seen her leave their doors that afternoon, and had discerned nothing in her to rouse admiration, or even to waken interest. They had known perhaps by some peculiarity of her dress, or by Joseph's accent, that she was from Nazareth. They might have thought her young for so aged a husband, and might have looked at her for a moment with transient kindness, which the evidence of her being soon about to be a mother would naturally excite. But this was all. They dreamed not of her unspeakable dignity, they perceived not the light of almost habitual ecstasy lurking in her eye. No odour went from her, which environed them with an atmosphere of heaven. There was nothing in themselves, upon which the attractions of her awful holiness could act. So is it always with the things of God. They do not make their claims out loud, their eloquence is their silence, their beauty is their mysterious unobtrusiveness. They do not flash upon the eye, and so compel conviction. They touch the heart, melt it, enlarge it, transform it, and when they have made it in some measure like themselves, they enter into it and possess it. They require study. This is their characteristic. Holiness is the science by whose rules and in the light of whose discoveries, and by the delicacy of whose processes the study must be carried on. The nearer a thing is to God, the more blinding is the light in which it lies, and therefore the more assiduous and patient must the study of it be. Hence it is that nothing requires so much study as the sacred humanity of Jesus, and next to him the chosen mother of his humanity. Very nigh indeed to them comes the tranquil magnificence and unruffled depths of Joseph's sanctity. It is this, then, which occupies the centre of the cave. Uncreated holiness and created holiness in one person, and in two natures, 
the incarnate word, the infant creator, there, but not yet visible. This is the object of our wonder, our love, our thanksgiving, our most absolute adoration. He has around him, almost blended in his beauty and his light, two worlds of created holiness, vast and glorious, and both of them without parallel. In one of these worlds he has dwelt himself for nine months, and out of its material he has vouchsafed to draw the materials of his own created body and blood. The other of these worlds he has placed near him, just outside, and yet hardly outside, the actual mystery of the Incarnation, as the outpost to defend him, as the satellite to minister to his mother and himself, as the shadow under whose safeguard and concealment the mystery might be operated, in the way most suitable to the divine perfections, as the shadow of the Eternal Father following him from heaven. These three worlds form one system, which we name the hierarchy of the Incarnation, in the stricter sense of the words, or the nucleus of that hierarchy, if we speak less strictly, although with perfect propriety. And, in this latter case, the Apostles, the Baptists, the Evangelists, and others come into the system. Theologians have been bold enough to name these three worlds of holiness the earthly trinity, and the usage of the saints and of devotional writers has now consecrated the reverently daring language Thus is the cave of Bethlehem an awful image of the threefold majesty in heaven. It is there that the divine shadows are deepest and most clearly defined. It is there that all similitudes between the creator and the creature are drawn together and concentrated. It is thus the very holiest core of creation, the creator himself being there in a created nature. It presents us with a kind of earthly beatific vision in which the unity, the distinctions, the relationships and the processions of the Most High, are marvellously pictured, filling the beholder's soul with rapture, fear, and love. What are the mysteries of music and of poetry? What the wonders of the starry skies? What the stirring science of past creations disinterred from the ciphered chambers of the taciturn rocks? What the exciting pursuit of fugitive protean matter retreating, amid endless unexpected changes, into the fortresses of its last elements, behind which the baffled chemist with prophetic genius ever suspects other last and last resolutions and more and more ultimate refuges to which he can at present come no nigher, what the physiologist's intense and joyous awe, as with silent patience and his microscope he tracks the principle of life amidst its labyrinthine cells. What are all these intellectual joys compared with the joy of that mother science, heaven-born theology, which takes us thus into the central sanctuaries of creation, and shows and illumines for us the earthly trinity in the cave of Bethlehem. Around that centre, what is the characteristic furniture of the cave? Who can doubt that all was there, which was most fitting, most divine, most in harmony with the incomparable mystery? Yet all is so unlike what we should have imagined. Five material objects stand round about, and, as it were, over the shoulder of each of them, we discern an ethereal form looking on, a spiritual presence assisting there, of which these five material things are, as it were, the representatives and symbols. First of all, there are the beasts, the ox and the ass. There is surely something inexpressibly touching in this presence of the inferior animals at the nativity of the incarnate Creator. In the Incarnation God has been pleased to go to what look like the uttermost limits of his divine condescension. He has assumed a material, although a rational, nature, and according to our understanding it would not have been seemly that he should have assumed an irrational nature. 
nevertheless he is not unmindful of the inferior creatures. Their instincts are in some sort a communion with him, often apparently of a more direct character than reason itself, and bordering on what would commonly be called the supernatural. At times there is something startling in the seeming proximity of the animal kingdom to God. Moreover, all the inferior animals, with their families, shapes, colours, cries, manners and peculiarities, represent ideas in the divine mind, and are partial disclosures of the beauty of God, like the foliage of trees, the gleaming of metals, the play of light in the clouds, the multifarious odours of wood and field, and the manifold sound of waters. It was then, if we may use such an expression, a propriety of divine art that the inferior creatures should be represented in the picture of their maker's temporal nativity. While the sheep lay on the starlit slopes outside, the ox and the ass stood sentinels, full of patient significance and dumb expression at his manger. The herds of cattle which were collected within the walls of Nineveh were one of God's reasons for sparing the repentant city. The wild beasts in the wilderness were his companions during his mysterious Lent, and, as all beasts are symbols of something beautiful and wise in God, so has he many times vouchsafed in his revealed word to make them the symbolical language by which he has conveyed hidden truths to men. They were not without their meaning in the scene of the nativity. They remind us that the babe of Bethlehem was the creator. Their presence is another of his condescensions. He is not only rejected of men, but he trespasses, so to speak, on the hospitality of beasts. He shares their home, and they are well content. They welcome him with unobtrusive submission, and do what little they can to temper with their warm breath the rigour of the winter night. If they make no show of reception, at least they deny him not the room he asks on his own earth. They make way for him, and there was more worship even in that than Bethlehem would give him. We reckon such things as these among the humiliations of our blessed Lord, and rightly. Every circumstance, every detail, every seeming accident of the Incarnation is full of humiliation. It follows by a necessary consequence from every mystery. Even the praise of men is a deep humiliation to the Most High in His incarnate form, when we consider who they were that passed the favourable judgment upon His actions, and with what mind, as if they had a right to judge and patronise, they passed it, and also who he was whom they were praising. All praise of God, unless it be worship also, is humiliating to him. Thus everything about the Incarnation was humiliating. Our Lord's dignity, as it were, holds a strong light over all his human actions and sufferings, and shows each of them to us, in its real character, as an unfathomable abyss of condescension, no matter whether the mysteries be those of glory or of suffering. There are even some points of view from which the mysteries of Tabor and the risen life seem to be more truly, and also more unnecessarily, humiliations than the mysteries of Bethlehem or Calvary. Nevertheless, after long meditation, together with an habitual remembrance of our blessed Lord's divinity, there are often times when we lose sight of this character of humiliation altogether. As the divine nature can suffer nothing, so its adorable impassibility seems to pass in a certain way to the human nature which was joined with it. Our Lord's divinity appears to hinder anything from becoming a humiliation. It raises ignominies into worshipful mysteries. It clothes shame with a beauty which beams so brightly that it almost hides from us the horror of the outrage. His lowness becomes a divine height, a height which none could reach but God. 
his disgraces are crowned with lustre and become nobilities. He raises what he touches to his own height. It does not sink him to its vileness. There are men who weep over our Lord's passion, yet who have almost to do a violence to themselves to realize his humiliations. So strongly and so brightly is the grand thought of his divinity before their minds. Moreover, it is just these men who, because they are so exclusively possessed with the idea of his Godhead, honor with the tenderest minuteness and with the most astonishing unforgetting detail the mysteries of his humanity. Our Lord's companionship with the inferior animals was one of these glorious humiliations which have become honorable mysteries. But he was not only their companion, he was laid in their manger as if he was their food, the food of beasts, so that he might become in very truth the food of sinners. This manger was the second of the material objects which were round about him. While it was a deep shame, it was also a sweet prophecy. It foretold the wonders of his altar. It was the type of his most intimate and amazing communion with men. It was a symbol of the incredible abundance and commonness of his grace. It was a foreshadowing of his sacramental residence with men from the ascension to the doom. It was like the sort of box or crib we sometimes see at foundling hospitals into which the deserted child is put, with none to witness the conflict of agony and love in her who leaves it there. It is as if he were placed in the manger like a fatherless foundling, with the whole of the unkind world for his hospital. The rough straw is the quilting of his crib, and the refuse of an oriental threshing floor is not like the carefully husbanded straw of our own land. Men made him as a worm, and no man in the onslaughts of his passion. He himself, in his first infancy, makes his bed as though he were a beast of burden, a beast tamed and domesticated for the use of men. The vilest things in creation are good enough for the Creator. He even exhibits a predilection for them. The refuse of men, that is the portion of God. It is not only that we give it him, he chooses it, and his choice teaches us strange things, and stamps its peculiar character on Christian sanctity. Such is the furniture of the nursery of the King of Kings. The light of Joseph's lantern shoots here and there, redly and imperfectly, through the darkness, and we see the faces of the dumb beasts, with the pathetic meekness in their eyes, and the rough manger worn smooth and black and glistening, and the straw scattered here and there, and bruised beneath the feet of the animals, and so perchance rendered less sharp and prickly as a couch for the newborn babe. We must add to these features that very darkness which the lantern so indistinctly illumines. The darkness of earth's night is the chosen, the favoured time of the uncreated splendour of heaven. It is the curtain of his concealment, the veil of his tabernacle, the screen of his sanctuary. He came first to Nazareth at dead of night. At dead of night he is coming now at Bethlehem. At dead of night also will he come, if we rightly penetrate his words, to judge the world. There is no darkness with him, and he needs no light to work by, who called the sun itself from nothing, and hung it over with a white mantle of blinding light. He came to darkness, it was his very mission. He came when the darkness was deepest, as his grace comes so often now. The very depth of our darkness is a kind of compulsion to the immensity of his compassion. This darkness is the fourth material thing which is round about them. Lastly, we must note as another feature of the cave its excessive cold. 
the very elements shall inflict suffering upon their creator as soon as he is born in his created form. The air, which he must breathe in order to live, shall be as inhospitable to him as the householders of Bethlehem. The winter's night will almost freeze the precious blood within his veins. But what is the strange world but a polar sea, a wilderness of savage ice with the arctic sunshine glinting off from it in unfertile brightness, a restless glacier creeping onwards with its huge talons, but whose progress is little better than spiritual desolation? The sacred heart of the babe of Bethlehem has come to be the vast central fire of the frozen world. It is to break the bands of the long frost, to loosen the bosom of the earth, and to cover it with fruits and flowers. As he came to what was dark, so he came to what was cold, and therefore cold and darkness were among the first to welcome him. The beasts, the manger, the straw, the darkness, and the cold. Such were the preparations which God made for himself. From the first dawn of creation every step, and there were countless of them, in the worlds both of spirit and of matter, was a preparation for Jesus. It was a step towards the Incarnation, which was at once the cause and the model of it. While each step seemed to take creation further on, it also brought it a step backward, a step homeward, a step nearer to the original idea of it, all in the mind of God. The creation of the angels was a step towards Jesus. The successive epochs in which our planet was ripening for the abode of man, and the successive forms of vegetation and of life, which God caused to defile before him, in the slow order characteristic of all his works, were all steps towards Jesus. The patriarchs and the prophets, the history of the chosen people, which was a prophecy of the future at the same moment that it was a free drama of the present, the unconstrained realized allegories of the lives of the typical saints, the rise and fall of each system of Greek or Oriental philosophy, the fortunes and destinies of the empires which thrust each other from the stage of the world's history. All these were steps to Jesus, all were the remote or proximate preparations for the Incarnation. When the babe Mary was born of Anne, the world little dreamed how God was quickening his step. Mary and Joseph were the proximate preparations for Nazareth, and for the midnight mystery of the unspeakable Incarnation. Each of these steps, as we study them, tells us something more about God than we knew before. The knowledge of him grows into us through the contemplation of them. But the grace of the Immaculate Conception was like the opening of heaven. It seemed as if the next moment men must see God. And so it was, as moments count with God. Now we have come to the proximate preparations of Bethlehem, the beasts, the manger, the darkness and the cold. End of section 9